0: verses 15 through chapter 7, verse 7. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month alone in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Erah, and his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had carried into, that had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Asariah, Ramiah, Nehomini, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishareth, Bigvi, Nehum, and Banna. This is the word of the Lord.
1: should see how the chapter continues. Uh, So boys and girls, if you'll come up to the front so I can pray with you before you head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. Come on up. great to see you all today that's that we we pray here we put our hands in the air together and then we're going to bring them down past our eyes close our eyes and I'll talk to God Heavenly Father we thank you for bringing us to church today for the youngest to the oldest we thank you that each week you bring us you want to teach us something new about yourself help us to be kind and loving to one another and we thank you for the opportunity to do both those things today be with the boys and girls in story keepers today and in nursery We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can head out. Just uh, one other announcement I forgot to make in case John Belay is in Atlanta this weekend, but in case he's watching, he'll never forgive me if I don't remind you that the uh, blood drive is this. This week on uh, Wednesday, downstairs in the Gilmore Room, and uh, there's plenty of spaces still available. You can go on to redcross.org uh, to sign up for those if one of those slots if you're able to help with that. Let me pray, and then we'll think about our passage today. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word, grateful because you are God who speaks to us uh, from Genesis to Revelation, even in the book of Nehemiah, even in a somewhat obscure part of the book uh, with, as we'll see, a lot of names, but a passage that you've given to us for our encouragement, for us to apply in our lives. So help us to do that today. Help us to see its relevancy for each of our lives, no matter if we're still working out what it is we believe about you or whether we've been seeking to walk as followers of Jesus for decades now. Uh, Speak to us through your word, by your spirit we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, Friday's church email, I included a link to an article uh, put out this week by the Gospel Coalition. The article was entitled, Use the Kaizen Method of of Sermon Application. Just on the off chance, there's one or two of you that didn't read your email on Friday. Still don't understand how that happens, but there's maybe a few of you. Let me tell you about the piece. Uh, Joe Carter, who wrote it, starts uh, with a question. The question is this: Over the the course of your life, how many sermons have you heard? (sighs) I will not take the time to do the actual math here, but for many of us, we could safely say many sermons. We've heard a lot of sermons. But then he asks the tougher question: Over the course of your life, how many sermons have you applied? If you're like most Christians, the number of sermons that you've intentionally, proactively applied in your life is significantly fewer than the number of sermons you've heard. And Carter points out that this is obviously an issue since application in our lives is one of the primary purposes of sermons. So how can we be more intentional in applying sermons in our lives? Carter suggests that we learn a method of all places from the car maker Toyota. He goes on to explain how in the 1960s and 1970s, Toyota was famously able to do something that most car companies back then struggled with, and that is the mass production of reliable cars. While he says there were apparently many reasons that American cars tended to be of poorer quality during these decades, one primary obstacle was the method of production. Assembly lines tended to run nonstop at these car production plants. If a worker noticed a defect on a vehicle, he didn't have time to fix the problem before the next car was coming down the production line. And so the the worker had to rely on the defect being noticed and corrected further down before the car left the plant. However, it happened only too often. The defect of cars were sold to consumers without having been noticed and the problem went to the consumer. Toyota took a different approach, that at each workstation on the production line, there was a rope cord that any worker could pull to stop the entire assembly process. So that if a worker spotted a problem, she'd pull the cord, she'd stop the process, and the whole team would then work on it together to prevent it from happening again. The more that occurred, the more problems were identified and fixed, causing the number of errors to drop significantly and the quality of the cars to increase by leaps and bounds. And this practice was a subset of the Toyota production process known as, you guessed it, Kaizen, which in English means change for the better or continuous improvement. Continuous improvement. That at Toyota, the word referred to this culture and philosophy of continuously improving. Now, Carter describes all this and then suggests that this this Kaizen method offers us a a helpful way to to think about sermon applications as a means to continual improvement in our Christian lives. Now, I'll give you just the four main steps that he identifies. If you want to learn more, you can go look, look for that email in your inbox and, uh, and click on the link. The first step, just really the most basic step, is to obviously identify and make note of the application points. That's part of the reason that every Sunday in your bulletin you'll see under the sermon, you'll see one point to share, space in there for you to write something to remember from the sermon, something to apply from the sermon. The second point, Carter says, is to set a time then during the week after you've heard the sermon to review the application points. And the third step then is to commit to applying the application point before the following Sunday. And then the fourth is to commit to this continuous improvement and apply what Carter says, spaced repetition. That's what makes this process, he says, a Kaizen approach. You're committing to doing this process for your continuous improvement by not only persevering with the process, but also continuing to apply what you've learned from previous sermons and previous weeks over an extended period of time. He says, if you apply those steps over the course of a year, you'll have reviewed and applied about 100 application points. That can't be a bad thing for our Christian lives to actually do. And that, says Carter, is the Kaizen Method. Now, some of you might possibly be wondering, what on earth does that have to do with Nehemiah 7? Well, I start with this because, as you may have picked up from Sonia's reading, and as you certainly would pick up as you read on, this is one of those chapters in the Bible where many of us, if we were to come across this in our daily Bible reading, or even just based on what we heard this morning, we would think to ourselves, I'm not even sure why God put this chapter in the Bible. What on earth does this have to do with me trying to live a Christian life in October 2022? How am I meant to apply this? Now, it's just based on what Sonia read this morning. I had her stop at Nehemiah 7, verse 7. If you were following on the screen and not in a Bible or in your ESV scripture journal, you'll not have seen that what follows then is this from the second half of verse 7. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shepatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pahath-Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakkai, 760. That's to verse 14. It goes on like that all the way to verse 59. All these names, a lot of names, most likely not your name. So maybe you've arrived this morning without noticing in Friday's email what today's passage would be, or perhaps you're visiting today, and if you're honest, right now you're feeling just a tad little disappointed because this passage just isn't giving you the vibe that it's going to be particularly helpful today. You were driving to church this morning thinking your favorite Bible passages, I guarantee you, you weren't thinking Psalm 23, Romans 8, John three sixteen, and Nehemiah 7. I always forget about Nehemiah 7. (laughs) Well, my aim today is to show you that this passage, Nehemiah 7, is actually a great first passage to apply the Kaizen Method to, because this chapter was definitely written to be applied. What we're going to learn here through Nehemiah's example is threefold, how he, number one, plans for the future, number two, looks to the past. Number three speaks to the present. Plans for the future, looks to the past, speaks to the present. So first of all, Nehemiah plans for the future. So towards the end of, of uh, chapter six, so why I had Sonia start there, in the midst of all these plots against Nehemiah that we were looking at at the end of last week's sermon, Nehemiah makes this almost sort of matter-of-fact statement, but which is truly momentous. Verse 15, so the wall was finished, on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Amidst every kind of distraction, the operation of rebuilding this wall miraculously takes less than two months, was a triumph of concentration and a testimony to God's protection, to his equipping, to his strengthening. But as chapter 7 begins, we are reminded Jerusalem is still essentially a ghost town. Verse 4 tells us, with the walls rebuilt, the city was large and wide, but the repopulation was still next to nothing, with few houses rebuilt, and still most people living in the more rural areas outside the city. And what we therefore are going to see in the next four chapters is a transition in the book from a focus on the, the rebuilding of the walls to a sort of rebuilding of the city. I like how Jim Packer summarizes the shift in focus. He says, Nehemiah, through God, built walls. God, through Nehemiah, built saints. And the first part of this, building of the saints, involves Nehemiah here planning for the future. Look at verses 1 to 2 in chapter 7. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many." In the space of two short verses we get, almost as an aside, the three issues that were close to Nehemiah's heart which were going to be vital to the community's physical and spiritual and intellectual development as he planned for the future. Firstly, their physical need was protection. So Nehemiah appoints gatekeepers to oversee the city's main entrances. He gives oversight responsibilities to his brother Hanani and to Hananiah, the governor of the castle. He mentions that this second appointment was due to Hananiah being both faithful and God-fearing. It's a reminder to us that good leaders in the church always appoint godly leaders. And while we don't have physical walls and gates of a holy city here to watch and to guard, the role of gatekeeper is still a relevant one for God's church today our denomination's leadership training guide, it mentions that the elders in a church have at least three roles as godly leaders. They are firstly to be models of discipleship. They are secondly to be the spiritual health encouragers of the congregation. And thirdly, you guessed it, they're to be gatekeepers. And that means that the elders in a church have the responsibility to guard the church against theological error, to, to be on their watch for anything that might derail us as a body, to protect the church members for any kind of abuse that, there, there, that might come along. That's why the work of our nominating committee each year, which, as it's meeting right now at this time of this, this month, is so important as they prayerfully consider whom they might approach as potential new elders and deacons for our congregation, because still today there is a need for gatekeepers. Nehemiah not only identifies the physical need of protection as, as he plans for the future, he also identifies the spiritual need for worship. That's why he appoints singers to lead the community in its praise and adoration of God. In the previous two months, the builders, the building of Jerusalem's walls, the associated challenges had necessarily concentrated everyone's attention on material, physical and economic realities. However, now the appointment of the singers reminds the people that that life is more than bricks and mortar, and that actually their greatest priority was to make sure that God was at the very heart of their personal and corporate life, and that there's nothing like singing to root us in that priority. In the sing book I mentioned during the announcements, Keith and Christian Getty point out that the Bible actually contains over 400 references to singing, and about 50 of those are direct commands to his people to sing. Not optional extras, not a suggestion, a command to sing. And part of the reason for that constant call for us to sing, and part of the reason for Nehemiah's prioritizing of singers here, is because God has given music, this inherent power, and when music is, is combined with gospel words, it ministers to us powerfully in a unique way. I think most of us would agree that if we were simply to take our bulletins this morning and just read together... The words of the songs, that it just wouldn't have the same effect. It wouldn't stir us in the same way as singing the words. Why is that? I don't think we have a full answer, but it's at least worth pointing out that that singing is a full-bodied action that engages uh, more of us than if we're just sitting and listening or even reading texts. Because singing requires us to call on parts of the body that might otherwise be quite dormant, stomach muscles and Vocal cords and lungs and tongues. And somehow, I think, because singing involves our body in a unique way, it seems to have this privileged channel to our hearts, to our gut, to our imaginations. And then you throw into the pot the fact that music and songs are power, powerfully called forth memories or other associations, places, times in our lives. We realize that these songs get to us in a way that other forms of discourse don't so that as nehemiah plans for the future he recognizes the importance of all this he identifies the spiritual need for worship and so he appoints singers thirdly briefly nehemiah also saw the intellectual need for teaching and so he appoints levites while the responsibilities of those in the tribe of levi would have been reduced during the exile without a temple now the importance of the levites is underlined by Nehemiah's prioritizing their appointment. So we're going to see in chapter 8, the Levites of this period after Israel's exile seem to have had a pastoral, educational, and example-setting function. Nehemiah understood that as important as singing is, there's more to faith than just singing. That if the heart's to be inspired in worship, then the mind must be informed and someone must be responsible For the filling of the mind, for the communicating of the great truths of the faith. For Nehemiah in his day, that responsibility fell on the shoulders of the Levites. All part of Nehemiah's planning for the future. However, in our second point, we want to see that in order to call the people to move forward as he plans for the future, Nehemiah is going to first call them to look back. Look to the past, he says. Nehemiah's planning for the future was contingent on Rebuilding not just the walls, but the city. And therefore, it needed inhabitants, it needed residents. Verse 4 again the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So, in order to establish the city, people were going to have to make some difficult decisions. It was going to mean moving from the countryside, moving from the safety of the suburbs into the city. It was going to entail building the city infrastructure with homes and neighborhoods. So how is Nehemiah going to motivate and inspire the people to make that necessary sacrifice to move into the city? Look at verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. God puts into Nehemiah's heart, he prompts him that the idea to inspire future action could be done by something from the past. Nehemiah goes back to the archives, to a list of the names that actually first appears in Ezra chapter 2. As I I mentioned in a pre-earlier sermon, Ezra and Nehemiah originally were one book in the Bible, where there are two for us. This list has appeared already in Ezra chapter 2, and Nehemiah here essentially repeats it with a few variations. That record from Ezra 2 listed all the original men and women who 90 years earlier, under the leadership of a man called Zerubbabel, had made the thousand-mile trek over a period of four months out of exile in Babylon back to Judah and Jerusalem. So to us, when we come to Nehemiah 7, this just looks like a list, let's face it, a list of, of a boring list of names and numbers and places. It's the sort of a material that a modern writer would put into an appendix, or maybe put a footnote in here that just says, see Ezra 2. But for Nehemiah, this list isn't just going to be footnoted or appendixed. It's going to be put front and center at this point in the rebuilding project because he knows it's crucial to his goal. He's taking something that belonged essentially to the past in order to make it serve the needs of the present and the future. Because this list from the past would remind Nehemiah's audience of who they were, that they were sons and daughters of heroes, men and women who came back to Judah from Babylon who made that four month arduous journey, not knowing exactly what they were coming back to. The list contained the names and places of families who had been willing to uproot themselves from the familiar and the safe surroundings of Babylon to be obedient to the call of God to a much riskier existence in a land that had been destroyed by their enemies and left destitute and abandoned. They had embarked on a sort of second exodus, a new exodus. But like their forefathers of Abraham and Moses and Joshua, they had committed themselves to a mission that called for faithful dependence on God, obedience to God. So that this list is much more than a mere catalogue of hard-to-pronounce obscure names. This list served as an abbreviated narrative of the courage and love and faithfulness of people who at God's instructions went out not exactly knowing where they were going or what they were going to. And in the hands of Nehemiah, this archive was a motivational tool with those who were still living in Judah's countryside to come and live in Jerusalem, to follow in the footsteps of their forefathers who had sacrificially stepped out into the unknown. You can imagine Nehemiah reading through this list and saying, this list is a hall of honor. These people are our heroes from the past. They didn't come to Jerusalem and Judah to make it, to make money. They came back here to be the people of God, to be the Lord's covenantal people. Nehemiah would have said to those people, the only reason you're here today is because of what they did 90 years ago. And what I'm gonna ask you to do, he would say, it's way, way smaller than what they did, what your forefathers did. They traveled a long distance. I'm asking you just to go a short distance from the suburbs to the city to become dwellers there. I think Nehemiah challenges us here in our, just our overall view of history. Because for many people today, history is, is just a dead thing. It's locked away in inaccessible antiquity. But Nehemiah here reminds us that history is a living story. And when it comes to the history of God's people, it's a living story that not only relates the failings of God's people, and there are many, but also the way in which those who have gone before us have sacrificially transmitted the truths and the beauty of God's kingdom as an example to us. I think the danger for us is that our fascination with the present and all that's going on around us in the world makes us forgetful and even dismissive of the past. To so a corrective to that, I think we would do well to make it a, a regular practice of reading biographies of, of Christians who have gone before us. Reading those biographies to our children, if we've got young children. Still remember, two of the best Christian biography books that we found when our kids were young were called Ten Boys Who Changed the World, Ten Girls Who Changed the World. Little snippets of Christian biography of people that you may never have heard of. Even if you don't have any children, you might actually find those quite interesting and enjoy them. So read Christian biographies. Or read about the sacrificial faithfulness of entire churches who have faced great challenges with stupendous faith. A few years ago when I was at the pastor's uh, sabbatical course in Savannah that I attend annually. I went on a a Sunday to the first African-American Baptist church. I learned about how this African-American congregation could be traced back to 1773. Their building was constructed in the 1850s by slaves who had saved sufficient money to be able to purchase their freedom, but who instead decided to donate that money in order that a church could be built that could reach other slaves do well to take a page out of the book of the 17th century English Puritan, Richard Baxter, who took great delight in the stories of Christians from earlier periods to his life. And he said that as a result of his reading, he had, quote, dwelt among the shining lights, which the learned and wise and holy people of all ages have set up and left to illuminate this world, end quote. And we can, of course, draw inspiration from history closer to home. I don't know if I've ever done this before, but we're going to have a one-question quiz right now in the middle of the sermon. I haven't even asked the question, Sonia, so no, no, no. (laughs) So here's the question. If you think you have the answer, put your hand up. I have a prize. I have a prize. Who can tell me the significance of a week from this coming Tuesday in the life of this church? It's a Tuesday. First of November. You have the script. <laughs> first of November. Anyone want to take a guess as to Marcia? First meeting of the congregation. This book is, this is a lovely book, actually. This is Be Thou My Vision, A Liturgy of Daily Worship, now belongs to Marcia. First, first meeting. first. So let me, let me tell you what happened on the first of November, actually, 1862. We're coming up on the 160th anniversary in like nine days of our church. probably didn't know that. Because on the 1st of November 1862, 160 years ago, a week from Tuesday, a new church was formally organized in Kennett Square called Kennett Square Presbyterian Church. History tells us that Kennett Square was incorporated in 1855, in the early 1860s, the town had a population of just five to 600 people. There were only two religious groups in the area at the time, the Methodist Church and the Hicksite Friends, who were a liberal branch of the Quakers. May 1861, Reverend David Moore, who was the pastor of Lower Brandywine Presbyterian Church in Delaware, just across the road from the entrance to Winterthur, began visiting Kennett Square on Sunday afternoons, holding services. At at that time, there was just one Presbyterian living in the town. And Moore held those afternoon services for a year until the arrival of his friend John Gilmore in May 1862. Reverend Gilmore, there's a plaque for him over on the far wall there. you probably never looked at it. The hall down below us was named after him, was invited to undertake pastoral work in the town, which he agreed to do. He didn't expect to stay beyond the summer, preached his first sermon in the Borough Hall that May to a congregation of of 20. Soon after that, a Sunday school was started. Numbers increased at the fall meeting of the presbytery that year. A petition was presented requesting that a Presbyterian congregation be organized in Kennett Square. That request was granted, and the church was formally organized in the town hall on Saturday, the 1st of November, 1862. And the founding members of that church were Elizabeth Mendenhall, Mary Ann Clark, Thomas Roney, Elizabeth Roney, Edward Clare, Emmeline Clare, James Roney, Sidney Roney, Maria Springer, Hamilton Graham, Mary Graham, Emmeline Graham, Catherine Gilmore, Isabella Tunis, Eliza Pennock, Hannah Lamborn, Mary Lamborn, Rebecca Marvel, Mary Graham, Charles Schultz, Asenath Schultz, John Springer, Edwin Gibson, Clementine Gibson. That's the Presbyterian Church of Kennet Square's Nehemiah 7 list right there of those who stepped out in faith to launch this church and whose witness from 160 years ago encourages us to be continually stepping out in faith and obedience to God today. That brings us to our last point. That Nehemiah speaks to the present. Nehemiah had made plans for the future. He had looked to the past, so that he might now say something about the present. Look at verses seventy to seventy-two, towards the end of the chapter. Now, some of the heads of fathers' house of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury thousand darics of gold, fifty basins, thirty priest garments, and five hundred minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 daraks of gold, 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 daraks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. Uh, again, this is actually a very similar way that the Ezra 2 ends, where the original list of exiles, exile returnees is found. And there, in Exod 2, the author mentioned what the heads of those families had given towards the work of the rebuilding of the temple. Here, Nehemiah record, records what his generation had given towards the work of rebuilding the city. When Nehemiah mentions what the governor gave, remember, that's, he's talking about himself there. He's wanting to set an example to the people from the top down. And it's a reminder how we live in the present This includes our generosity to gospel work in this day as they gave in their day. That that living in the present doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's shaped by how we view both the future and the past. That was true for Nehemiah and his contemporaries. It's true for us as well. The Apostle Paul's favorite way of, of expressing this idea was through his famous triad of faith, hope, and love. The Christian life, first of all, is lived through the lens of faith, through the lens of trust in what God has done for us in the past. Now, God, of course, has done a multitude of things, a countless number of things for us in the past, but the main thing is that his son Jesus, the true Israel, uprooted himself from a place of comfort and security and beauty, not a place of exile for him, but of his eternal home, of heaven to come to this earth. That he gave up all that was familiar to him, all that was glorious in the fellowship of heaven, to be obedient to the call of his father, to a much riskier existence in a place that was being destroyed, in our case by sin, which of course is this world. That Jesus undertook the ultimate exodus, committing himself to a mission to rescue us from the exile that we were in, An exile from God to secure the forgiveness of our sins that we might be reconciled to the very God who has made us and be in relationship with him forever. So that the Christian life is lived through the the lens of of faith in what Jesus has done for us. But not just the lens of faith, but also the lens of hope. Because Jesus has made plans for the future for everyone who puts their trust in him. And it's, it's a plan of hope that is beyond your wildest imagination. It's what the Apostle John in the book of Revelation calls the new Jerusalem. That's the Christian's home. That's the ultimate home that we're looking forward to. The future home of every follower of Jesus. And it's glorious. There's no sickness there. There are no tears. There are no threats. There's no death. But the presence of your loving Heavenly Father almost like so real that you can touch it. You know, If you were to take the most joy-filled moment of your life so far, some of you could probably immediately think of what that is right now. If you were to take the most joy-filled moment of your life so far and multiply it by eternity and then by infinity, then you start to scratch the surface of what God is going to do for you in the future in this new heaven, new earth, in this new Jerusalem. When you truly grasp that, not only what God has done for us in the past, but what God has done, will do for us in the future, that just radically changes the way you think about the present. That's what shapes our lives into lives of love, faith, hope, and love. Changes the way you look at your possessions. The money no longer becomes kind of the source of your identity. Money just becomes money. So that your life suddenly is marked by this abundant generosity to give it to others, to give it to the work of God. It changes the way you look at your time. So now it's not about me, me, me. It's about investing in relationships so that you can express love and compassion to others. That there develops a love in your present life that can really only be explained adequately because it's such a supernatural thing, can only be explained by the faith in what God has done for you in the past and the hope for what God is going to do for you in the future, faith, hope, and love. So how might you apply this sermon in your life this week? That if you had to come up with two solid application points from Nehemiah 7, what might they be? They'd be connected to the earlier idea that Nehemiah appointed singers because life is incomplete without the worship of God. Or might it be that before the end of the year, you'll commit to read at least one Christian biography that you might be inspired and encouraged to to live more fully for God as others in the past have? Or could it be that you'll, you'll take time this week to reflect and meditate more deeply than perhaps you've done in a long time on what God has done for you in the past and what he's promised to do for you in the future through Jesus, and then to reflect how How does that change how I'm going to live this week? I'm going to ask Barb to play the organ just for a couple of minutes to give each of us time to jot down at least two practical application points. We haven't been doing so already by taking notes through the sermon. You can do it in your bulletin. There's plenty of space in there today. You can do it on a device so that we might maximize the benefit of this time in God's Word, and after that, I'll pray for us all. Lord, we thank you that your word is alive, your word speaks into our lives today, and that even a chapter, somewhat obscure chapter like Nehemiah 7 can help us think about what it means to live lives of faith and obedience to you. We pray, Lord, that you might prompt us to, at some point this week, come back and think about what we've written, what we've thought about this morning. And that it might begin a new journey of applying things, of actually putting these things into action within, within the seven days of hearing them. And then next week, getting some more and building on it so that we might just grow and flourish in, in faith and love and obedience, trusting you and seeing the fruit of your spirit in our lives. Help us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Down to sing our next song, Strength in the Lord.
2: for Mission Today focuses on GTI HOPE. GTI HOPE is one of our global missions that we have been supporting in our church for many, many years. Their purpose is to train and equip Indian churches to teach the gospel to unreached people groups in their country. They do this by providing the, uh, the following services distributing Bibles in the languages of India, training and equipping Indian church planters, conducting Bible content uh, literacy classes, and conducting vacation Bible school for children. They also teach self-support like sewing. We are going to watch a video now that shows how a village was transported uh, trans, um, how a village was transformed through uh, GTI Hope. It really is. In 2016, a church.